All right, so um, your guys' uh, study sheets this morning, handouts, we've got um, a couple things for reference. So as you can see, I'm going to borrow. I'll give it back. Don't worry. I promise. You better. Without a wrinkle. Okay. All right, so I wanted to start to include, this is the full chart as we're starting to expand this out with the seven mysteries of what we're going over. Today we're going to be hitting our first section here in eschatology, which is the study of the last days. We're going to talk about Israel's restoration. But I, uh, we're going to buzz right through this one, but this is going to be just good reference material for you guys. Um, and then we're going to be spending more time on this page right here. So we're just going to go through the first couple pages here real quick. Um, we've already hit the mystery of godliness. We've already hit the mystery of Christ and dwelling the believer, talking about God coming in the flesh. And then when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, that spirit moves inside of you. And now Christ, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God lives inside of you permanently. And then from there, you're baptized into the, the body of Christ or the church, uh, which is hitting ecclesiology, and we spent a lot of time talking about that. And now we're starting to get into realms of eschatology. Now, getting into these ones, it's very exciting. I love talking about this kind of stuff, but these are things that we do not major on. However, the one today that we're going to talk about is super, super important, super important, because there are a lot of Christians out there that are highly just mixed up and they are confused about this particular subject. And if you get this one wrong, you're going to get a whole chunk of the Bible wrong, like a whole chunk of the Bible, if not all of the Bible wrong, most of the Bible. So this is a big one to understand. And these are things that you may not quite get yet now, because I think there's very few um, among your peers that are actually discussing the topic of Israel's restoration. Um, but this is something that if you really want to understand the heartbeat of God, and if you really want to understand the Bible, and there are a lot of false doctrines that come out of misunderstanding this one. So I want to make sure you guys get it. And this might be the first time that you're introduced to this, and that's completely fine. This is something that's going to keep coming up again and again. I can't tell you how many times that we've gone over stuff like this in the senior high, and I've had singles come back to me two, three years down the line and say, hey, we did a study on that thing. I'm like, yeah, he's like, and or he or she would just say, you know, I had this opportunity with this person at school or someone that I worked with or someone that I just ran into and I'm starting to have some conversations. Could you send me that material again? This is one of these. This is, this is it. This, what we're going to go over this morning, this lesson and the things that we're going to talk about, these are very, very important that are going to come in handy into the future. So if you don't get all of it now, it's completely fine, but try to get as much as you can because this one is super duper important. All right. So we got the seven New Testament mysteries and we're going to be hitting the restoration of the nation of Israel. All right. So page two, flip it over. Let's hit this. There's some important context that we need to get. And you can look up a lot of these verses later. Um, they're great verses to have. When you talk about the history of the nation of Israel throughout Scripture, um, it is very clear. In fact, the majority of your Bible is dedicated to the nation of Israel and to the Jew. And so as you kind of work through, it's very, very important to understand it. And just in summary, so that we can all get on the same page, we'll just go down through these nine things. All right, first of all, uh, the birth of the nation of Israel. God makes Abraham unconditional promises of a kingdom and a heritage. And Abraham believes God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And so he was righteous with God because he believed what God had to say. God basically told Abraham, leave your people, leave your country, go to this place. And he had no idea where he was going, but he just said, God told me to go, so I'm going to go. And he believed God. And then from Abraham and his lineage came the nation of Israel. So as they grew and as they multiplied and became a nation, uh, they were in bondage in Egypt for how many years? 
400, like 430 years actually. So they were in the nation of uh, Egypt for about 430 years in bondage as slaves. And then God rescued them out of the hands of uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians by the hand of Moses. And so God calls the nation, my son, my people, mine, my wife. And he does not do this with any other nation on the planet. God has never done that with any other nation. That's very important for us to understand. Uh, Some people might say, well, man, that's racist. Okay, sure. God's racist then. But he chose to do this. There's a reason why God chose to do this with the nation of Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, I believe it's in Deuteronomy, he even tells the nation of Israel, listen, don't boast because of the fact that I've chosen you guys. I actually chose you because you were the weakest, the most frail, the smallest. This is what God does. He loves the underdog. And so he chose the weakest people and chose to bless them and to be their God. And through them, the entire world would be able to hear the truth about God. And so God calls them mine, and he specifically calls them my son, my people, mine, my wife. But unfortunately, Israel rejects God. Israel ultimately rejects Jesus as the Messiah, and they reject God completely, and they say, you know what, we don't want God to rule over us. And then God puts Israel away, and he divorces them for a period of time, uh, not because of him, but because of the nation of Israel. They don't want him anymore. So Jesus himself comes Uh, As Jesus Christ, God comes to offer reinstatement. So he wants to have this restored relationship with the nation of Israel. And that's what the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about. When he came and he said, hey, the kingdom of heaven has come nigh unto you. And he's offering it unto them. Hey, it's yours. If you want it, I'm here as your king, as your Messiah. I'm willing to give you that kingdom that I promised you. And they outright just rejected it. Now, a lot of people accepted him. And a lot of people wanted him to be the king. But... As far as the nation of Israel and the leaders were concerned, they wanted nothing to do with God. And so because of that, now the mystery of the church is revealed. So Israel rejects God completely and totally, and so now the mystery of the church is revealed. So God is now accomplishing, he's still building his kingdom, and he does it through the church until you get to the tribulation period. So we're kind of in this number seven. We're in this period right now where we've got the church age, but there's coming a period in the future after the church is raptured out of here that the tribulation is going to occur. And what marks the beginning of the tribulation? Anybody know? What marks the beginning of the tribulation? Come on. Yeah. When the Antichrist stands in the temple and No, not that one. But that's an important event, and we'll explain that in a minute. What starts it? The rapture? No, not the rapture. It's, I mean, that's before it, but what starts the tribulation? Yes. Okay. So when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty with Israel, that's Daniel chapter 9. That's the 70 weeks prophecy. When the Antichrist signs that peace treaty with the nation of Israel, it's a false peace treaty, and it's going to last seven years. And halfway through that peace treaty, that's when he sits on the, uh, the mercy seat. So the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, where the Dome of the Rock is currently. And once that temple is rebuilt, the Antichrist is going to walk into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is and the mercy seat, and he's going to sit upon that mercy seat and declare that he is God. And that's going to happen at the halfway point at the the tribulation. So once you hit about three and a half years into that tribulation, he does that, and then that's when the Bible says, listen, once you see that occur, you Jews that are in Jerusalem, flee. Get into the mountains. Go. Escape. Because it's going to get bad. And so then you have that one. So the rapture of the church is going to occur for sure. But then after that, you have the Antichrist signing that peace treaty. And then three and a half years in, you have him declaring that he is God in the temple. Okay, so during this time, 
God's going to chasten his people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, and the rest of the world. But primarily the focus is upon the nation of Israel because he wants to bring them back into relationship with himself. And this is what's described in the book of Job. Uh, he's a great type of the nation of Israel. It's described in great detail in the book of Ezekiel. Matthew 24 gives you the whole timeline of the tribulation and the seven years and what's going to occur. And then after the tribulation is over, then you have the second coming of the Messiah where he ushers in the millennium where God will ultimately restore his people. And there's going to be a thousand-year reign where he's going to rule from the throne in Jerusalem. All right. So that is a very high level. Now, there's a lot of you that as you might get introduced to this for the first time today, as you start to chew on this over a period of years, there's more and more details. But I at least wanted to give you that picture because that is what the Bible teaches. If you've heard anything different, um, then you just read your Bible. Because if you just read your Bible, that's exactly how the Bible lays it out. The only way you can come up with a different interpretation is that you do not take the Bible literally. That's the only other way you can, you can fall out somewhere else. Okay, now the reason why we believe this and the reason why we believe that God is preserving the nation of Israel um, is some of these things, which some of the stuff is absolutely amazing. So when you look at the nation of Israel and you look at the Jew, these things are undeniable. So first of all, they can trace their genealogical history to the first members of their race. Most people can't even do that at all. Their original language is still intact. They can lay claim to a specific land grant from God, because God's the only one that's given them that land grant specifically. They are both a race and a religion. They were preserved throughout history through incredible persecution. They, there are still racially pure Jews alive today. They were scattered and reunited after 1,900 years without a country or government. That has never happened. Never. You, you Just study history. You will never find a people group that had a country, they had a government, they were established, and they were a powerhouse in the world. And then something happened where everything was completely dismantled, and the people were scattered, and another nation took over, and then you have almost 2,000 years of human history, and then they're given their land and their government back. That has never happened, ever, ever, ever. Think about the Grecian Empire. It ended. Where is it now? It's gone. Roman Empire, where is it now? It's gone. Every single empire that's been demolished has never been reunited. And the only one is the nation of Israel. That's huge. That's huge. In recent history, this would be the Six-Day War that happened not that long ago. Um, in recent history, they have been victorious over their enemies, although they were outnumbered approximately 35 to 1. Now, this is absolutely, I mean, just astounding. So in this war, so Israel was in a war where they were being, they were being, I mean, their butts were getting kicked from two sides. So you guys know this if you study this and study history at all. Whenever you're fighting a war, you hope it's just a one-front war. Because if it's a two-front war, now what? You're split. Exactly. So you're being attacked from both sides. So Israel, small chunk of land, was being attacked from two different sides. And so on the Egyptian front, Israel had 275 killed and 800 wounded. Ouch. All right? But 275 and 800 in a war, that's actually not that bad. Listen to this. The Egyptians had 50,000 killed. 50,000 compared to 275 killed. You think God was in the business of protecting them? Absolutely. Now listen, on the other front, the Syrian front, Israel had 115 killed and 306 wounded. Syria had 2,500 killed and 5,000 wounded and 591 taken prisoner. 
So six day, a six-day war, by the way. Most wars are not six days. <laughs> They're not. Six months, six years. I mean, this is amazing. God supernaturally protected them. The land associated with Israel is of more concern to the nations of the world than any other place. Everybody's trying to make peace with Israel. Israel's trying to make peace with everybody else. I mean, it's amazing. Every peace treaty that's come out, listen, this is amazing. This is what you don't hear in school because especially once you get into college, you will hear so many different liberal agendas kicking out towards you. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Here's what they will not tell you. Every peace treaty that has been put onto the table, Israel has accepted every single one of them. Every single one of them. Every peace treaty that's been brokered by the U.S. about the Arabs and the Israelis, every single peace treaty, Israel says, yes, we agree. It's been the Arabs that have said, no, we don't agree. Every time, every time, every time. So tell me, who doesn't want peace? But you will never hear that. You will never hear that, ever, ever. It's amazing. It's amazing. But the downside is, is because they want peace so bad, and the Antichrist comes in, yes, we're in. So that's the downside. No political attempt has ever been able to resolve the intricacies associated with the land and its people, and that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. So it's important for you to understand just a little bit of context before we get into the rest of this. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And our verse for this one is verse 25. God makes this one abundantly clear, abundantly clear. <clears throat> All right, somebody read that for me. Romans eleven twenty five. Good. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become it. Okay, he makes this clear. Just look at this verse again. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Okay, that tells you right out of the gate that people are absolutely ignorant of it. Why would he say that? He's like, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So that tells you that people are. People do not understand this. People do not get this. They are ignorant about this. But it says that you shouldn't be ignorant, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, because this is our tendency, and this is kind of our first point here. We tend to be ignorant and wise in our own conceits. We do. We tend to think that we've got it down, that we have it all together, that we don't need any help from anyone at all. Until when? Until you need help. And here's the reality. You only can actually, you know, realize your need for help when you, when you ask. When you ask for it. See, people think that they don't need God. People think that they have it handled. People think, generally, I've got this. But then when things start to fall apart, here's what happens. Have you ever tried to keep water in your hand? Like, you try to take water and it just keeps falling out? Like, that's what, how people handle their lives. Like, it's a mess. No, I got this. I got this. <laughs> no, you're an idiot. You don't have this. You need help. And the reality is, is a lot of us do this. This is what we tend to do. This is what you do. This is what I do. This has been one of my biggest mistakes that I've made in my life. When I have been at a point where I've really needed help, and deep down I knew it, I was too prideful to admit it and to ask for it. 
we've got to understand this. This is human nature. And so with the history of Israel and the nation of Israel and how God uh, loves them and is going to use them, people are very, very wise in their own conceits. Many people think that God is done with the nation of Israel. Many people think that the church has replaced Israel. Many people think that God is just, forget it. It's done. It's over. It's over. Okay, if it's over, then why are they still here? Why are they still here? Why are there still things that unfold like the Six-Day War where God is supernaturally protecting them? Why? Wouldn't they not be like any other country or any other nation that would have been completely disbanded and then just melted into the melting pot of humanity? Why are they so different? Anyone have an answer? Yes, because God's not done. God is not done. He's not done. I mean, you go back and study your genealogy and your heritage, and where did you come from? Ireland. And where did Ireland come from? God. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You, you trace your lineage back, and you'll find out that you can make your way all the way back to Adam and Eve. You can make your way all the way back to Noah if you really want to go back that far. But the reality is, is that it is, the, the waters are so muddied, it is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. All of us have like, I mean, at least, at least six, at least six to 10 different heritage in our blood right now, as far as Gentile nations are concerned. Israel? No. There are racially pure Jews that are alive today. That is unbelievable. So that tells you that God is not done. But men want to be wise in their own conceits. They choose to be ignorant about this mystery, even though God makes it abundantly clear. And even in the New Testament, that actually belongs to the church. I mean, the book of Romans gives you the doctrine of the church. It tells you everything about Jesus, salvation. I mean, everything you can think of. He spends three chapters talking to you about the nation of Israel. That is significant. So it's important that we understand the nation of Israel and its role because most people are ignorant about it and then they completely go off on so many crazy doctrines. It's unbelievable. So here's some examples of people that are wise in their own conceits. Uh, if you were to look up that phrase, you'll find out that people are wise in their own conceits and they're ignorant about the wicked that prosper. They don't understand why wicked people prosper. They don't understand righteousness and salvation. They don't understand why God is done with God is. They think that God is done with the nation of Israel. Uh, they are basically deceived by their own lusts, according to 1 Corinthians 10.1. They're ignorant about spiritual gifts. There are so many people that are ignorant about spiritual gifts. That's why we've been doing that on Wednesday nights, although we're taking a break for this month. Um, 2 Corinthians 2.11, people are ignorant about Satan's devices. They don't know how he works. And if you don't know how your enemy works, how can you defend against it? You can't. You absolutely can't. Like, let's say this afternoon at 2 p.m., someone's going to break into your house and murder your family. And they're going to break in through the back door, and they're going to have whatever weapon you can think of. What would you do? Stake out with a shotgun. Stake out with a shotgun. Not be home at 2 o'clock. Right? Yeah. So, but here's the reality. Here's the reality. When it comes to those people that do those sorts of things, do they communicate their plans to the people they're going to attack? No, they don't. They don't. God is good enough to you to tell you exactly who the enemy is, how he attacks, how he operates, so that way you can know when he's coming and how he comes at you, so you can defend yourself against it. But people are ignorant about Satan's devices. They are ignorant about how he works. People are ignorant about death and the afterlife. Oh my gosh, that is so true. There's so many beliefs, beliefs about death and the afterlife. 
People are ignorant and wise in their conceits about creation and recreation. And then people are also ignorant about God's time and God's perspective. And there's many other things in the scriptures, but those are the biggies. So you have to understand that. And just as a devotional application, um, you know, I don't know if God's convicting you of this or not. If he is, you need to pay attention. If you need help, ask for it. If you need help with something in your life, you need to ask for it. Don't wait until everything explodes and it's a giant mess and then you ask for help. It is better to ask for help sooner rather than later. It's just the same illustration with weeding. Everyone loves weeding, don't we? It's, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I absolutely hate it. When is it easiest to weed? When they're tiny. When they're tiny and... When the ground is wet. Do you know that the Bible is equated to water and your heart is equated to soil? That when you let the word of God get into your heart, get into your mind, get into your life, it will loosen up the soil. And when the weeds are small, they're much easier to pull out. But if you don't spend any time in the word of God, you don't pray to God at all, and you don't let the word of God dwell richly inside of your heart, and then the weeds get huge like tree trunks, good luck trying to pull those suckers out. You know what you're going to need? You're going to need a spiritual backhoe (laughs) or spiritual dynamite (laughs) or I don't know, whatever, in order to break up what's going on in there. And let me tell you, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts much worse to let things go that far that something drastic has to occur in order to loosen up the ground in your heart rather than just listening to what God has to say, hearing him, being soft, being submissive, and asking for help. Okay? So please, please, if you need help, ask for it. Ask for it. Please, don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot like I've been and like many of us have been that are adults. We can probably list our idiocracies down the line. All right, so number two, number two. All right, so the second part of Romans uh, 11.25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, Israel's restoration, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. All right, so this is the point that I really, really, really want to spend some time on. And we don't, we're not going to be able to spend a ton of time on it, but I really want to spend more time here. So this whole blindness of Israel exists until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. All right, so I want to get two other volunteers. Someone look up the Luke 21 passage. You got that one? You've already read. Let's get someone else that hasn't read yet. All right, Sam, you can take the other one. Do the Ephesians 1.10. I want you to, guys, I want you to listen to this one. So take a look at Romans 11.25. And I want you to listen to these other two verses because there is a difference in between these verses. So you have the fullness of the Gentiles in Romans 11.25. So blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now listen to Luke 21.24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Okay, times of the Gentiles. Gentiles. Okay, write that down on your guys' sheet. Times of the Gentiles, okay? So you have the fullness of the Gentiles. Now you have the times of the Gentiles. And then Ephesians 1.10. Listen to this one. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even Okay, so the dispensation of the fullness of times. 
okay? The fullness of time. So that would be the other one to write down, all right? So that way you can kind of see them side by side by side. So you have the fullness of the Gentiles, then you have the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, and then you have the fullness of times, okay? So here's a really good rule of Bible study, and anyone can understand this one. Ready? <clears throat> Things that are different are not the same. All right? Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. I want to make sure that we're registering on the logic scale. All right? So things that are different are not the same. So if you have the fullness of the Gentiles, that is not the same as, Carson, what's yours? The times of the Gentiles. And that is not the same as? The fullness of times. Okay? So based on the context here, you have the fullness of the Gentiles. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But what we know that it isn't is the next one. So Carson, read yours again. Read that verse again. And they, shall fall, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Ju- Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Okay, so who is that talking about in that verse? Who's being led away captive by the sword? The Jews. And specifically it says Jerusalem. Until when? Until the times of the Gentiles is over. So let's talk about this. I got a chart for you. Make it a little bit more simple. Okay. So here we've got this, all right? You've got Abraham, you've got Israel established, you have Israel rejects, rejects God, all right? Then you have this blue parenthesis period. So that Israel rejecting God, the key indicator of that time and when it began was the Assyrian and the Babylonian uh, captivity, all right? So once that occurred and they rejected God, now you have what's called the times of the Gentiles. Prior to that, Israel was a world power. I mean, a world powerhouse, Remember the times of Solomon? All the nations came to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He had more money, more everything than anyone could ever possibly imagine. Israel was a world power, the world power. Once they declined and eventually rejected God, now you have Gentile nations that ruled the world. And what was the first one? What was the big one? Think of that statue in Daniel chapter 9. or Actually, in other places, but Daniel 9 is a big one. Babylon. Babylon. Babylon was the first big world power. Nebuchadnezzar is a great type of the Antichrist. And then from the Babylonians, then you had? Roman. Nope. Persian. Persians. The Medes and the Persians. And then after the Persians, that's where you had Cyrus and everybody. After them, you had? Roman. Nope. Greece. Greece. Yes. <laughs> We're going to get to the Romans, but yes. Then you had Greece. And then after Greece, you had? Roman. The Romans. Okay, now we have the Romans, all right? And then the Roman Empire is then split. So that's where the Roman Empire eventually ended up becoming what? You have the Roman Empire, then was united with Christianity, and that became the Holy Roman Empire or the Roman Catholic Church. The Holy Roman Empire then was divided into two. What were the two divisions? The Byzantines and the other one. Yep, the Byzantines and the other one. Yeah. Roman. It's just Roman because you have like the Pope and the Vatican in Rome today. That would be the other. So you have the two branches. So you have those two that go all the way down. And now they've never really stopped being in power per se. But as far as their world influence, it's not been as strong. And that ended with the Philadelphian church period um, because then God took the gospel and the Bible throughout the ends of the earth. But that's where the Roman Empire is going to be revived in a different form where you have many nations that are now just basically following the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire's lead. All right. So, but that would be the times of the Gentiles. So that period in between the blue parenthesis, left and right, that would be the time when Gentile nations ruled the world. And if you have any doubt about that, think about the United States. If the United States did not exist in this world today, what would this world be like? 
<laughs> Not America. <laughs> all right, all right. Just imagine, just overnight, all of a sudden, the United States is now gone. All its power and its influence is now gone. What would happen? <laughs> we would be invaded. But we, right now, let me just give you, just think about that. The reason why I'm asking that question is because whether people like it or not, we are the world powerhouse in the world today. Our economy, our military, we're all over the place. All over the place. Now, there are other economies and there's other militaries that are strong. You've got China, you've got Russia, you've got others. But in comparison, I mean, I've been told that as far as this military is concerned, we could take Russia at any moment. Like, it's not a big yes. deal. China, however, no. Not so. China is something to be worried about. So, and the only reason why I worry about Russia is because of their nuclear capabilities. But also China, same thing. All right. So I'm saying that just as an example. Gentiles rule the world today. We do. We do. We rule the world today until the tribulation occurs. God chastises the nation of Israel, brings them back under his authority, and then he destroys all the Gentile nations, and then he rules with a rod of iron. That's what the Bible talks about. So that would be the times of the Gentiles, all right? So the times of the Gentiles from that point to that point there. Boom, okay? All right. And then the next one, the Ephesians 1. Read that one again, Sam. You still have it? Yeah. That okay. in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Okay. That's it. It was right there. All right. The dispensation of the fullness of times. This one's easy. What is the fullness of times? <laughs> There's like everything. What do you mean? Yeah. Time's over. Right? Fullness of times. There comes a point where time is over. God completely disbands time and it's done forever. That would take place after the white throne judgment. So once you have the millennium and everything is finished, then you have the final judgment where it says in Revelation 20 verse 15, and whosoever is not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. And then it says in the next chapter that God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And he declares that time is no longer. So time is over. It's the fullness of times. So here you have something a little bit different, the fullness of the Gentiles, because the fullness of the Gentiles is not the times of the Gentiles, and it's not the fullness of times. It's completely different. So what in the world is this? Okay? So it would be this. The fullness of the Gentiles equals, let's just go back to your study sheet, it equals the restored sons of God. The restored sons of God. The restored sons of God. All right. Now, this is kind of cool. So let's go on a little journey with me on this one, all right? So go to Job 38. Job 38. Job 38. This restored sons of God. What in the world are you talking about? Job 38. So when you search for the phrase sons of God, it mostly shows up in the New Testament. In your King James Bible, it shows up mostly in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it shows up, let's see, one, two, three times, three times. And so here you have Job 38, and verse 7 is our focus, but I want you to look at the context of this, all right? So verse 4, God is speaking to Job, and he says some very interesting things. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All right, so what is that talking about there? God's smart, he's not. God's smart, he's not, yeah. But specifically, that is true, but specifically, the creation of the world, all right? The creation of the world. It says, who hath laid the measures thereof, talking about the foundations of the earth, verse 4, who laid it? Who laid the foundation? Who laid the cornerstone of all of existence, and especially the earth in existence? Jesus. Well, yeah, we know that because of Genesis and Hebrews and John 1, right? But he's like, were you there, Job? Were you there when I created everything at the very beginning? And then he says in verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who is that? Who are those people? The angels. The angels. Now, how do we know it's angels? <laughs> yeah okay so let me give you give you two things so the morning stars can be two things all right the morning stars could either be angels because angels are referred to as stars in the bible they're constantly referred to as stars all over the place but the other thing that morning stars is referred to is the trinity is god jesus is called the morning star the bright and morning star all right so it could be both i don't know really what it is but we do know that angels existed prior to the creation of everything okay so angels, and then it says, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who's that? So if you've got the morning stars, and then you have the sons of God, who are the sons of God? Okay, all right, go back to Job chapter 1. Let's see if we can find out more about these sons of God. Job chapter 1. This is the second place where it's mentioned. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Verse 6. So I'm going to read verse 6. You've already got it. It's good. All right, Emily, go ahead. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves there before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. What? What is that? So there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. What does that mean? Okay. Okay, fallen angels, and how do you know they're fallen? They're with Satan. Okay, that makes sense, right? You just look at it, and what does the Bible say? You have the sons of God, they present themselves before the Lord. What is this? Not really sure. I've got a couple guesses. According to the Old Testament, God told the nation of Israel that there's three times a year that they're supposed to present their sons before God, and they line up with uh, three feasts. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, you got the Feast of the um, uh, Tabernacles, and you have the Feast of the Ingathering. And so during those three times of the year, the men were supposed to come and present themselves before the Lord. All right? Interestingly, you have a moment of time where the sons of God were told by God, I need you to come and present yourselves before me. And then you have here, Satan also came in among them. But here's the thing. Satan is a cherub. He's not an angel, right? According to what the Bible says, he's a cherub. He's not an angel. What is he doing coming among the sons of God? But it happened again in chapter 2. Take a look at chapter 2 in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So it appears here that even though Lucifer, now Satan, begins in his fallen state, is uh, not a son of God, that he's among them, and it's almost as if like he's their leader. All right, doesn't it appear to be that way? Okay, now the other place that the sons of God show up is in Genesis chapter 6. Go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis is the first book in your Bible if you have a hard time finding that one. 
First book, six chapters in. Genesis, very important book in your Bible. Verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, there it is, the sons of God, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also also his flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. So what do you learn from that one? Just some basic observations. What do you learn from that one? Superheroes. Yeah, all right, we got a few. Babies with humans. Okay, angelic beings called the sons of God had children. With human women. Yes, yes, with human women. Hugh Jackson, Jackson. yeah, there you go. And these these things that were born from them became, what does it say? Giants. Giants and also mighty men, men of old, men of renown. Who were those people? Legends. Where do you think a lot of the Greek and Roman mythology stuff came from? Yeah, <laughs> this during this time now skewed for sure, but there's a lot of truth to this where you have angelic beings. Which, by the way, when you study angelic beings in the Bible, oh my word, they are massively strong, endued with great strength. So if you have the DNA of an angelic being, which by the way they have to have left their first estate and take on flesh and blood in order for that to happen, because you can't procreate unless you're also flesh and blood too. Anyway, so you have that whole thing where they end up creating an abomination in the sight of God. And it's not a coincidence that prior to this, everything was going okay, but then you have this unfold, and what happens in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7? God destroys the earth with the flood, because the wickedness of man is very great in the earth. So there's a very, very close connection between the procreation of angelic beings with human women to create these abominations that end up corrupting the DNA of the, the, the entire human race. Okay. So you have this unfold here, and you have some of these legends that started to be born, and they were mighty men, men of old, men of renown. And so you have all this unfold here. Now, so far with the sons of God, good or bad? Bad, very bad. All right, Genesis 38, they were good. God laid the foundations of the earth. Everything was fantastic. But then all of a sudden you see now Satan's among them. And then you see in Genesis chapter 6 that they're procreating with women, creating an abomination that led to a worldwide flood. So there's something negative going on here. All right? I want you to see that. Now, what commission did God give Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. And do you know that Adam was also called a son of God? Go over to Luke. Luke chapter 3. Take a look at this. See, we're doing some Bible study this morning. This is comparing Scripture with Scripture to get a good understanding of some solid biblical doctrine. But most Christians won't even do stuff like this. All right, so it hits the lineage here, and then it caps it off at the very end with verse 38. Someone read verse 38. All right, go ahead. Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Okay, so Adam is now called the son of God. Who else is called the son of God? Jesus, Jesus is. 
Okay, so now we're starting to make some connections here. So I hope you're hanging with me. This is very important, all right? So you have these angelic beings called the sons of God, and you have Adam that was given the commission to being fruitful and multiply, and you also see in Genesis 6 that the other sons of God, fallen, have the ability to procreate, okay? So it's not a stretch to, see, to think, put two and two together. If you're a son of God, you have the ability to be fruitful and multiply, right? That's consistent with Scripture, all right? Angelic beings or human beings... It's the same. The commission is to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, Jesus, was he fruitful and did he multiply? Yes. What did he do? He made disciples. And that's the same commission that we have today is to be fruitful and to multiply. So this is where we talk about, okay, sons of God fell. All right. God had these things called the sons of God. They had the ability to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply. They fell following after Lucifer. And now you have Adam. And then you have Jesus, which are the only two that are called sons of God up to this point in Scripture. And now you have us. So go over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'll get a lady to read for me verse 12. You got it. See that? So if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, it says right there in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. See, God is a God of patterns. And he doesn't leave things undone. If he has a group of, of creatures called the sons of God that he has given a commission to be fruitful and multiply, and they fall... Now there's a chunk that's missing in God's plan, right? Adam comes along. He is a son of God. He's given the commission to be fruitful and to multiply. But then what happened to Adam and Eve? They fell into sin. They're no longer sons of God. They can't create sons and daughters of God throughout human history until Jesus shows up, who is now the son of God. And through his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, as many as received him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Got it so far? This is stuff that most adults don't understand, by the way. So if you're hanging with me, good job. This is very easy to understand when you compare scripture with scripture. So now if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, you are now a son of God. You are now part of that sons of God category that God is now in the process of restoring. This is so cool. And so when you share the gospel with somebody else and you tell them how to become born again, when a person becomes born again spiritually, they become a son of God. And the more people that receive that gospel and become sons of God, they are restored back into that peace that is missing. Until when? It's full. So you go back to Romans 11.25. Go back there again. Romans 11.25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in... And so all Israel shall be saved. See, right now, God is focused on the Gentile church. 
He's focused on the Gentiles and he's creating a church. When a Gentile becomes born again, it is now put into the church. And it is mainly to the Gentiles because the Jews have completely rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And now he's focused on the Gentiles. If you have any doubt about that, just read the book of Acts. That's exactly what unfolded. And so now Israel is partially blinded because there are some Israel people that are part of Israel, the Jews, that can hear the gospel and get saved. And according to the book of Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians, if they get saved, they're no longer a Jew. Now they are part of the body of Christ. The same as you as a Gentile are no longer a Gentile. Now you're part of the body of Christ. But once the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, then all Israel shall be saved. And that happens through the tribulation. Okay? Is everyone with me? Any questions so far? Is this clear? Okay. All right. So once the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, that's what is going to trigger the rapture of the church because God knows that number. Whatever that number is, we have no idea. But once that occurs, when that final person, who is now the part of that restored sons of God, it is now complete, now the rapture can occur. And once the rapture occurs, then you have the Antichrist that starts to gain his influence. He comes in, signs that false peace treaty, begins the tribulation period where God chastises the nation of Israel. And then you bring everything full circle. The very end, Zechariah chapter 12, it's an amazing chapter where it talks about Israel will finally see Jesus and they will receive him as their Messiah and he will save them. And that's what verse 26 talks about. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Okay, so that is it. And I wanted to give you that because that's huge. But here's the big takeaway. There's two takeaways that I really want you guys to really get with this one. Number one, the gospel, evangelism, discipleship, it matters. Huge. It is more than just your obedience to do what God says you're supposed to do. It's way more than that. You're part of the process of restoring the sons of God. That is massively huge. Very important. So it goes more beyond you and your circumstances and what you may think, oh, I'm just doing this because I'm a good Christian. No, not at all. You're doing this because you have a part to play in restoring the sons of God, and that's big. Number two, God is not done with the nation of Israel. Many people that are out there that believe that God is completely done with them, and he is no longer going to do anything with them. And then even somehow the Antichrist is using the current nation of Israel for his end. It's not true. That is absolutely not true. It leads to a lot of different false doctrines. So that's why it's important to really understand this mystery. Okay. So we good? Last blank would be, there's no doubt. No doubt about Israel's restoration. Thank you. So, and I put in a bunch of stuff in there because if you would just read the Old Testament and believe it, I mean, God speaks volumes about the restoration and how he is not done with them. And if someone says that God is done with the nation of Israel, they cannot take those passages literally. All right, so this week, you have a great opportunity. You have a great opportunity in order to just keep talking to people about the gospel and making disciples because everything that you do really does matter. Brandon. Is this also like another reason why we can't lose our salvation? Yes. It's biological. Yes. Yeah, because when 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. When you accept Christ as your Savior, that Spirit of God literally moves inside permanently and creates in you a brand new creature that has never existed before. So yeah, that's why you also can't lose your salvation. Yep, that's good. That's your question. Yeah. There are some churches now, I know where you're going with this, teaching that God has given up on Israel. 
Well, ultimately, it's from Satan himself. It's from the enemy of God. Because if the devil can destroy the nation of Israel and have people say, you know what, I don't care about them, let's just kill them off, well, then there's no physical kingdom for Jesus to come back to and to restore. So I think it's directly because of the enemy wanting to make people and perpetuate false doctrine in order to kill off the Jews. This is a common thing now. Oh, yeah, very common. Very common. A lot of Christians, I, don't, I, I mean, I, I will say, I won't say most, but there are many, 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 many Christians that believe that God is done with the nation of Israel and it's going to lead you down a very bad path. Mm-hmm. Very bad path. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Okay, this one's a deep one. We did a deep one today. Hopefully you guys didn't drown. If you did, I apologize. Okay? All right. You'll be okay, though. All right. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and how magnificent it is. And I pray, God, that we'd hold on to these things. And I know this is something that we're not all going to understand the first time we hear it or even the second or third time. But I pray, God, that we'd at least know that you're not done with the nation of Israel. And there's a very important job for us to do right here, right now. Um, as a son and daughter of God. So help us to remember these things, hide them deep within our heart, and that this doctrine would truly affect our decisions that we make uh, today and tomorrow and the rest of this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget about snow tubing. Sign up if you're going to go. Even if you're like 50% sure you're going to go. Sign up.